Church, would you bow with me once more? Great God in heaven, we come to the point in our worship service where we turn our hearts, our minds, our attention, and our affection to your holy word. God, for thousands of years, people have given their lives to transmit this word across generations, across the world, Father, that we may hear from your spirit this morning. Lord, we grateful hearts approach your holy word, knowing that there are still so many throughout the world that don't even have a copy of God's word, of your word, Lord, in in their own language. Father, thank you so much that you have preserved your perfect word and delivered it unto us. Lord, we ask now that even though a foolish and frail preacher stands behind this pulpit, that you would speak from your word. God, that you would teach us from your holy instruction. Father, that in in the next few moments you might add the richest blessings to the teaching, to the reading, to the proclamation of your holy word. Lord, we thank you for the truth and the hope that is found in your word. This morning, would you please encourage us? God, would you challenge us? Would you comfort us? But also, Lord, we ask that you would convict us. All this is possible through your spirit working through your word. To divide even soul and spirit. We ask that this miracle would take place by your power and by your grace this very morning. We ask these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The very first book of the New Testament will be in Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you this morning, I invite you to take and borrow one from the pew in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of Scripture and you're visiting with us this morning, that copy of Scripture in the back of the pew is yours to keep. It is our late Christmas gift to you. So please know you're welcome to keep that. Or if you prefer to look on your tablet or your phone or follow along on the screen. But however you're accessing the sacred text, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. We look together now in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 17. When we come to the completion of verse 17, I will say this is the word of the Lord and I encourage you to respond with the words, thanks be to God. Let's look together now at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. 
and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So... All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, folks, this morning, as we walk through chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, it's very gospel-rich text. I was actually a little surprised that no one blurted out a hallelujah as we read through this list of names. I don't know through lists of names in Scripture and be moved to scream out to the Lord, praise God, hallelujah, glory be to the Father. I was a little surprised nobody felt a little charismatic as we read those names. They're so rich in gospel, you, you, nobody felt... Led to, to raise a hand or anything, did you? No? So it's okay. It's all right. I, I'm going to confess something to you, and I, I'm going to be honest, all right? This is, this is me being transparent with you. There's been a time or two that I've been reading in the book of Numbers, or maybe the book of Ezra, or possibly this genealogy, and maybe even the genealogy in Luke, where you start through the names, and you just kind of skim on down to the bottom. Amen. Read my chapter for the day. Oh, Lord, that was inspiring. I'm going to go about the rest of my day. Anybody else ever been guilty of that? Maybe? No? Just me and Wesley. Thank you so much, Wesley. God bless you. It, so, I tell you what, though, brother, everybody else in this room is much holier than we are. I, they've, they ain't never read through the Bible and skipped over any of these names. It's, it's, it's powerful stuff. It's, I'm, I know why you wouldn't skip over them. So this morning you may be wondering, okay, did the pastor just want to show off that he could read this list of names and not stumble over them? No, because that's the first time I didn't mess up, all right? So just know that there's no special skill behind reading these names, but it is important as we continue the same sermon that we had last week. Last week we looked at how people try to find contradictions in the birth narratives that are listed in the Gospel of Matthew and that are listed in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we looked at last week how both of those birth narratives are unique, but they are complementary and not contradictory. They do not contradict one another. So let's just walk through very quickly some of the contradictions that we went over last week and give some of the resolutions to them. We are going to look at the details first that both accounts agree on. Both Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus being born of a virgin. Matthew 1.18, Matthew 1.23, Matthew 1.25, and Luke 1.27. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin is agreed upon by both accounts with no issues whatsoever from anybody in the scholarship realm. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. That's both agreed upon in both passages. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, agreed upon in both passages. 
after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth. That's stated in both passages, Matthew 2.23 and Luke 2.39. Now, here are the details that are unique to each writer. Matthew is the one who tells us about the visit of the Magi. The Magi, the three kings, the wise men who come and visit Jesus. Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt after the Magi's visit to escape Herod and his cruelty. A group of shepherds in Luke that are not talked about in Matthew visit Jesus in the manger. Joseph and Mary make a trip to the temple in Jerusalem in fulfillment of the law. So we get details from Luke about a visit to the temple that Matthew doesn't talk about. We get details in Matthew of a visit of wise men that Luke does not talk about. But these details are unique to each gospel, but they add to the picture. There's no contradiction between them. If you'll remember from last week, we focused in on Luke chapter 2, verse 39, which told us that once they had completed everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And if we're reading Matthew, it doesn't look like there's enough time between when Luke tells us they returned to Nazareth for them to run down to Egypt and the Magi visit, then run down to Egypt, then come back up and go to Nazareth. All right? There's no contradiction, though, because it's a summary statement that those three verses, verses 39, 40, and 41, cover 12 years. You remember these? These facts, these are important as people tell you, you really believe in a virgin birth. Those two people can't even agree on their narratives of the birth of Jesus. How could you believe he was born of a virgin? Well, actually, they they do agree, and it is trustworthy. I do have to believe by faith, but my faith is not founded in foolishness. My faith is founded upon reasonableness. These things were recorded. They are accurate. They happened in this way. Luke 2.39 says they returned, but in the time frame, after the visit to the temple, but before they returned, there was about two years where they lived with their family in Bethlehem. That's where the wise men visited them. Remember, we talked about how the nativities we usually look at have the shepherds and the wise men there together, but that's probably not the most accurate picture of what was happening. They lived in Bethlehem for up to two years, and then the wise men visited After the wise men visit, they go down to Egypt, and then they stay in Egypt for a little bit. They come back, and they are warned in a dream not to go to Bethlehem, so they go back to Nazareth. That summary statement from Luke does not discredit what Matthew tells us happens after the temple visit. So today, we've looked through all of those things. We've walked through that timeline last week. Today, I wanted for us to spend some time in these genealogies. And I I know that that might seem a bit meticulous all right it might seem a bit tedious but i want us to consider the fact that god wrote down all these names on purpose and for a purpose and as we walk through this sermon this morning i would like for you to consider how vitally important it is that we serve a god who cares about who you are and what your name is when you read through the book of ezra god wanted a book of remembrance So he wrote down the names of everybody that returned to Jerusalem so he could remember the faithful remnant that came back. And you know, when it comes to us and our own salvation, I do believe it's a very good thing that we see examples in Scripture of God having a book of remembrance 
written down and recording detailed names and genealogies because God's not going to lose your name. God's not going to write you down and forget you. God's not going to misspell your name. He's not going to have a list of people and you show up at the pearly gates and they say, well, we've got a Tim, but I don't know that it's you, Tim. I'm not really sure that it's the same Tim. We didn't really write down the records really well, okay? That's not how our God operates. He kept up with the genealogy and every person along the way who was part of Jesus' family tree was essentially important and has information for us to glean. But there are people who look at the genealogy we just read from Matthew and then they look at the genealogy that's in Luke and they find something very different. And again, they say there are contradictions that are not able to be squared away. So look with me for just a moment in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Flip over a couple of Gospels. It will be on the screen for us as well. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, we find the genealogy that was listed by Dr. Luke, the physician, in his research. And you notice immediately that there's something very different about this genealogy than what Matthew has in his. Matthew starts off, At the end of the line, Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down. Immediately, you see, as we begin, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as he was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, and and it works its way the other direction. It starts with Jesus and works backwards the son of, instead of the father of. An immediate difference between the two. And you notice also, if you keep looking down, you go all the way to verse 38. Verse 38 says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He goes back to the very first human being. He doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. And says that Adam is the son of God, as is Jesus, the son of God. There's a connection that Luke is making. Remember at the end of our sermon time last Sunday, we talked about how each of these men is making a theological point in the history that they're recording. They're not just writing down facts for no reason. The Holy Spirit is moving on their hearts. The Holy Spirit is inspiring them with specific theological points to be made. And Luke is making a point that Matthew has not made. You see, Matthew begins with Abraham so that the Jews will understand Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. And so he puts emphasis on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very Jewish man who was and is and forever will be our Savior according to the prophecies. He is a Jewish Messiah to the Jews first and then to the rest of the world, just as Paul writes in his letters. And so we find a different narrative in Luke. Luke is going all the way back to Adam so that even in the genealogy, we can see that Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews. Jesus came to save everybody. That's why he went all the way back to Adam, because everybody in this room goes all the way back to Adam. Could have probably stopped at like Noah or somebody in Noah's family, but he goes all the way back to Adam. 
so that we understand Jesus was not just for the nation of Israel, was not just for those who lived in Judah, not just for those in the city of Jerusalem, not just a temporary king, but a king and a Messiah for all the world, for all eternity. Because he goes back to the very beginning of creation. And so we see there are differences in these genealogies, but thus far there's nothing that would really catch your eye as to be contradictory. You see, these two mimic each other perfectly as you go from Abraham to David. But once you get past David, things get a little bit different. As you read through the names, there's names that are on Luke's that are not on Matthew's. You see, Matthew's genealogy is condensed and divided into three groups of 14. It represents a movement through three time periods. Matthew intentionally condenses his genealogy for theological purposes, and each of the groups represents a different time period. The first group lists the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those who began the relationship with the Lord in such a way as them being called out as a specific nation, those men who established Israel that God called upon. The second names the kings. The third contains private citizens. So the intent was not to give a strict record, but rather to present the historical progression. It begins by highlighting the family origin, then the rise to power through the Davidic throne, and eventually the decline from royalty to the humble birth of the promised Messiah. There's nothing in the Gospels. There's nothing in the New Testament that is there by accident. Folks, if you look up how hard it was for them to come up with parchment and ink and preserve the things that they wrote down, they did not write willy-nilly. You and I might type an email 17 times before we send it. We might write Christmas cards, and if you got a Christmas card from our family and it had whiteout on the back of it during the return address section, it's because I didn't buy the stamp quick enough and I had to handwrite all the return addresses again, and somehow or another I don't know how to write my own address 150 times without making big mistakes. But fortunately, we got this wonderful stuff. It's called whiteout. You just take this little paint, you just put it over there, and then you just pray nobody notices, write your name again, and then send it in the mail. So if you notice that that was a mess up, that's not my beautiful wife. That was just me. They didn't have those luxuries. You messed up, you threw the whole piece of parchment away and had to go find some more parchment, which you grew from plants. And then stretched them out and dried them out. It's a long process. It's tough. You don't waste letters, much less words. All these names are in here on purpose. Matthew condenses them on purpose to show us the progression from the patriarchs to the kings to the humble stable where the Savior was born. Luke's account is unusual as far as historical genealogies go because there's really no other historical genealogy that goes the son of. They always follow from the father down, not the son up. Again, as we said, they are identical from Abraham to David, but the two accounts are almost entirely different from David to Jesus. Now this is a problem, or so we would, they would have us believe, those who doubt. There's only two names that appear on both lists after you get past David, and that's the two fun names that we read, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's a fun name. I don't care who you are or where you're from. I think we need to practice together because some of you have lost me and gone to sleep. 
Let's everybody together say Zerubbabel on three. Ready? One, two, three. Zerubbabel. All right. Zerubbabel's an important person because he's the guy that led him back to Jerusalem, okay? He's one of the main leaders that after the exile, they come back. So you've got to know his name. It's important and it's fun to say. Try again. One, two, three. Zerubbabel. All right. Now, look. Y'all are just saying it because I'm asking you to say it. I want you to be excited about Zerubbabel. You've got to understand, the exile is over. We're going back to Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel's leading us. Are you ready? One, two, three. Zerubbabel. All right. You feel good. A few people up. We can get back to it. Good stuff. So those are the only two names. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are the only two names. How do we account for this difference? That's a big deal, right? All that we've said up to this point, God cares about the names. He's not going to get Tim's name mixed up with some other Tim. God knows who we are. God records us in the book of life. It's great that God takes care of the details, but here we find two genealogies where the names are all mixed up. So how does it work? What's, what's the explanation? Well, some people, there's two main theories. Some people like to say that the main explanation for this is in the Jewish ritual of Leverite marriage. All right, you may not be familiar with Leverite marriage. It's an odd practice to me. I think it would be an odd practice to us in modern day, but in ancient times, this was a normal thing, all right? That means if my brother dies, it is my obligation to then marry his wife, have children with her that then count for my brother, but not me. They would be Michael's sons, not Nathan's sons. Now, this is a good theory. It really is, and a lot of people subscribe to this theory, and it does work for the most part. The problem is you have to have a whole lot of Leverite marriages to make that work, okay? So really, it's, it's not as plausible as what people might let you think. So you may have heard before that the difference is not because of Leverite marriage. The difference is because it's Mary's lineage and Joseph's lineage. Well, nobody would follow the woman's lineage. That's, that's problematic in and of itself. But if you look at the very last name, the name right before Joseph is listed, in Matthew's gospel, the man's name is Jacob. In Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel says that Joseph's father was Heli. Heli was probably Mary's biological father. And Jacob was probably Joseph's biological father. Mary and Joseph are not immediately related as family, okay? That's not the case. But it is very much plausible and probable that Heli, the man listed as Joseph's father in Luke, did not have any other sons. And so when Joseph married Mary and entered into Heli's family tree with no other sons, then Joseph became Heli's heir. And so there's, there's no incest going on here, but then you can follow Mary's family tree back up and it still ties to Joseph legally. So biologically, Joseph's dad is probably a guy named Jacob. Legally, Heli also claimed Joseph as his son because he had no other sons. And they, they probably lived with Mary's father, so that was another Jewish law 
that if your son-in-law and you have no other sons is living with you, then he becomes your heir. All that you own is inherited by him. And so Joseph has two dads, a biological dad and a legal dad. Since the legal dad is Mary's biological dad, you can follow Mary's line, which is what Luke does. So that's why you have Matthew following Joseph's biological line, and you have Luke following Mary's biological line until you get to the last name, which is Heli. He was both Mary's biological dad and Joseph's legal dad. Now, I know that's a little confusing, all right? Is everybody with me, though? All right? The names aren't going to match up once you get past David, and it's okay because you're following Mary, and Mary's dad adopted legally, so to speak, Mary's husband, Joseph, because he didn't have any other sons. So that's where all his inheritance went. So legally, he was written down as the heir of Heli, and then you follow it all the way back up. It makes perfect sense. It's, it's not really that complicated. We're not jumping over hoops to make the two genealogies match. You just got one that follows Mary's line and the other that follows Joseph's line. Now, if you go back up far enough, yeah, they got some similar relatives. But they're really, I mean, like, we're not talking third cousins here, okay? And we live in the state of Alabama. It shouldn't bother us that much, right? Is that, I mean, at least we're not in the state of Mississippi. Is that, are we okay there? All right. So, yes, somewhere down the line they were related. But, hey, somewhere down the line we're all related. Remember, Luke goes all the way down to Adam. All right? That's the resolution between these two genealogies. But I also want us to take just a few more minutes and dig in to what Matthew is doing with his genealogy. It's incredible what Matthew does. He lists women as part of the genealogy. That was unheard of. He talks about Rahab. He talks about Ruth. He talks about Bathsheba. He talks about Mary. He talks about Tamar. These women all were sinners, quote-unquote, sinners. One woman, Ruth, was a Moabite. And the Jewish law said that to the 20th generation, a Moabite was not allowed into the fellowship of the Israelites. And yet here is a Moabite woman in Jesus' lineage. You know why? Because Jesus is the Messiah first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Rahab was a woman of ill repute. She sold her body to have sustenance and have food and make money. And she is in Jesus' lineage. There's nobody that's too far gone for Jesus. There's nobody that can be excluded based on their sinfulness. And Matthew does that on purpose. He also starts off the gospel in such a powerful way. Even in the words of how he's introducing the gospel, it would have been incredibly moving to any Jew who was reading this. Matthew introduces his gospel with language that is reminiscent of Genesis. The Greek word that the, that the Bible renders as genealogy in verse 1 of chapter 1 is also translated Genesis, beginning. In the beginning, God. The first book of the Old Testament is Genesis telling you the story of the beginning. Matthew starts off his gospel using the Greek word for genealogy, which is also the Greek word for Genesis, because this is a new beginning. Christ has come, the old has passed away, and now there is a new beginning. There is new creation and new life in Jesus. 
He uses that word on purpose. It's a double entendre. If you were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament and you were reading what Matthew wrote, you would look at Genesis 1-1, you would look at Matthew 1-1, and it's the same phraseology. It's the same words on purpose because in Christ you can find new beginnings. And Matthew wants everybody who reads that to catch it, especially the Jewish audience that he's writing to. So it's the beginning. It's the new beginning. Narrates how God is recreating us through Christ. Then his opening words, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, had special importance to a Jewish audience. It traced his ancestry through the covenants that God made with Israel. The heading with Jesus' name and his ancestry is packed with meaning. In common practice, a person had a single personal name, which often carried some sort of religious significance. It's kind of like how Native Americans would give names that had meaning of what you were like. It wasn't just Bob or, or Sam or Joe. It wasn't just a label. It was, hey, he eats too much. Like, that could be your name. That would probably be a good name for me if I were a Native American. Come here, eats too much. We have leftover food. We would like for you to clean the plate. That's possible. It was part of who you are, all right? It describes something about you. Your name imputed upon you characteristics of how you would live. And so Jesus' name does this, and Matthew puts it at the very beginning. Jesus, which is his historical everyday name, the name normally used in the narrative of the Gospels. This name is Yeshua in Hebrew. The meaning of Yeshua is Yahweh saves. It's a shortened version of Yahashua, which is Joshua. Yahweh is salvation, even in his name. There's a new beginning, and this person named Jesus will be the outworking of the new beginning because our God saves. And you're only three words into the Gospel of Matthew and you know there's a new beginning in this man whose name is Jesus, which means our God saves. Three words in. No word is wasted. It's all there on purpose and for a purpose. There's 14 blocks in each one because they used to ascribe a numeric value to every letter. And David's names, the consonants, DVD, are 464, which is 14. David, the king, you remember the one that they promised? The scepter would never depart from his throne. This is the fulfillment of that promise. You should look to David because this is David's heir. This is the seed of Jesse. This is the root that would rise up from the stump. Everything that the prophecies foretold, all that the Jewish people knew, it's fulfilled in Jesus. And everything about this genealogy tells Jewish people all that they need to know to understand and trust that Jesus is God and our God saves. He has come once again to save us. That's all over the Gospel of Matthew. And folks, it's powerful even today. In that book I told you about last week, The Case for Christmas, written by Lee Strobel. It's a little short, 100-page book. There's a, there's a man in there who's a, a doctor and a, and a theologian and a scholar at a Christian seminary. And he tells the story of how he came to Jesus. He grew up in a Jewish household. He is Jewish by nationality and ethnicity. His name's Dr. Lapidus. He really wasn't that religious. They were just Jewish in identity. And they kind of nominally followed the laws and maybe went to synagogue here and there. He knew of 
scared to death to turn the pages of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And this man from Jewish background, as God began to work in his heart, he read through the Old Testament and began to realize for the first time the Old Testament is the same scripture that he had been learning throughout his life. And so finally a friend encouraged him in a very loving way to turn the page to the New Testament and he saw these words. He saw the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ. Wait a minute, the Messiah. That's the same one that I read about in Isaiah. That's the same one that's been prophesied all throughout my scripture and my text. He began to see that Jesus is the Lord. And then he thought that something about Christianity was just something Gentiles had made up in a, in a fancy way to persecute Jews. But the very first words were the son of Abraham. The Christ was the son of Abraham. That's, that's my Abraham, he thought. Folks, he came to know Jesus and is now a professor at a Christian seminary because he believes in Jesus. And what brought him to Jesus was the Jewish nature of Matthew's gospel. He wrote it to Jews, and Jews get it. But it's not lost on you and me either. Folks, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's been going on in your life. But the genealogy we read this morning tells me and tells you that you're never too far gone for Jesus. I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know what sins have grabbed a hold of your heart. But you're never too far gone for Jesus. Because our God became a baby. And the baby's name was Yeshua. Yeshua means our God saves. He can and He will save you. He lists people of ill repute. People labeled as sinners throughout the genealogy. Women, no less, in that day's society. Because he wants all of us to know that in Jesus, everyone can find new beginnings. So this morning, I, I wondered, do you need a new beginning? Do you need to meet this one who is salvation? Who's the new genesis for our hearts and our souls? If you do, I invite you. We'll have a time of response. You can come down and talk to myself, talk to Jake. We'll be down front. Ask us, what does it mean to trust in Jesus? We'd be happy to chat with you and talk with you about it. Folks, maybe, maybe there's something else going on in your life, in your heart. I, I don't know what it is. I don't want to presume to apply this, this text to made-up situations. I, I don't know where you are, but I know that Jesus is Yeshua, our God saves. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, no matter how long or how short you've been walking with Jesus as your Savior, He can, He will, He still does save today. So I encourage you, during our time of response, come down to these steps. There's nothing magical about them, but it's a place to humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I need you. I need deliverance. I need salvation. Will you save me once again? I'm going to pray for us, and then Jason's going to lead us in a song. As he sings, I invite you to stand and sing with him. I invite you to respond as the Holy Spirit moves upon our hearts. Let's bow together and pray. Father in heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. 
Your steadfast love endures forever. You're abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Lord, we are completely and utterly undeserving. Father, thank you that you, by the power of the Spirit, moved upon different authors to keep different accounts so that we could see the full picture. Lord, so that Matthew could write to one audience and Luke could write to another audience and we're all captured in one of those two audiences. God, thank you for being so meticulous in keeping up with names. Father, thank you for loving us. And for those who trust in you, that you write our names in the very blood of Jesus, who is our salvation. The one who was raised from the dead. God, we ask this morning that you would help us to love you, serve you, and follow you. Father, if there is anyone listening to the sound of my voice that has never trusted in you and given their life over to you, to allow you to be the Lord and Master, I pray that you might move upon their heart this morning. They might find new beginnings in you. Lord, we love you so very much. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ.